3: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Leonarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and with Lucy Dallas away this week, I am joined by our fiction editor, Toby Lishtig. Hello, Toby. Hello. Hello. Um, (laughs) Now, Lucy tends to start us off by pointing out something of interest. We've heard recently about the real and mythical amaranth plant, about a Greek olive tree so old it may have seen the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. So with no pressure at all, I ask you now, Toby, is there anything that you would like to alert us to this week?
4: I don't think I can compete with the olive tree in any way, in any meaningful way at all. Um, But in terms of my own sort of cultural dippings, I've I've accidentally found myself immersed in the Second World War this week, um, which is not something I would normally necessarily do from a cultural perspective. But um, both in terms of film and the novel I'm currently reading, we're we're in the early 1940s. And uh, the film is extraordinary. It's called The Painted Bird. And it's by Vaclav Mahoul, who's a Czech film director. Um, it was out in film festivals last year, but I think it was only recently came on general release in the UK. And I think it's a fairly limited release anyway. And I'm not even sure he's able to go to cinemas at the moment. But It
3: created quite a stir last year. I remember yeah, it did. The, the story at the time. Yeah,
4: It did. And for reasons I will soon describe, I mean, uh, essentially it's, it's, it's horrific in many ways. And there were walkouts. And the reasons were, I would imagine, because it is so grisly Um, It's about a boy's episodic journey through a scarred and traumatised and incredibly violent Poland during the war. It emerges that he's a a Jewish refugee. And it's a kind of a sort of phantasmagorical horror story with picaresque undertones. Um, It's about victimhood, herd mentality. It's not gratuitous. It's very beautifully shot and incredibly moving, but it is quite challenging. I'd hesitate to recommend it but I also think it's extraordinary. So that's the film and then slightly more uh, lightly <laughs> I'm reading Robert Harris's new novel V2. That is
3: quite a, that's quite a shift I would it's say. It's
4: quite a shift and it's not something I'd normally choose I was asked to review it by someone um, and I quite like that when someone approaches you and says hey would you do this for us and I think well I wasn't ever going to pick that up myself but with all due respect to Robert Harris it's just not the sort of thing I normally read but it's really good. I've been enjoying it very much. It's a you know it's a Second World War thriller about the V two missile sent over by the Nazis from Holland mostly into London in the southeast, which killed several thousand people, and the attempt by the British to thwart those rockets by uh, by way of finding out their starting location through the parabolic curve. Um, so they, you know they were very mobile. They 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 could be fired from forests and taken down very very quickly after firing i think it took about 20 minutes to sort of move the platforms away and so by calculating the curve from a location in holland the, the british were able to roughly figure out where these missiles were being fired from i won't give away the ending although um anyone who knows their history will know what happened
3: i remember a few years ago the um, i think it was the british museum published a book of bomb maps of london and it's you know hundreds of pages of them because there were a lot of bombs uh, and you and it sort of broke down uh, exactly where they fell, uh, you know, overlaying the maps, uh, and it specified whether they were V1 or V2. And then ever since, you would sort of, I remember then walking around the streets that I had walked through, you know, thoughtlessly, and recognising the sites where those bombs had fallen, and saying, oh, yes, that's why that building is there. That's why that looks different. And it just completely changes your relationship with the place.
4: It's so interesting, isn't it? And actually one of the one of the descriptions by Robert Harrison in V two is of an attack in Hoban. And I cycled past that location after reading that. And yeah, it's exactly as you say, you you start to look at the city differently. And this is, you know, London, like many cities, is a city is of holes and palimpsests and and um you know endless stories. So so yeah, it's um Uh, it's it's, it's a book that helps us to
3: to think about it in that way as well. It's not too far a leap, I think, from uh, certainly the kind of the dread and the darkness of your first offering there, The Painted Bird, to your fiction pages this week. The very sombre, or not sombre, there's a lot of dread and angst going on I wonder if you're all right Toby but um, you're going to be talking us through those later I'm
4: fine I think I'm fine yeah there (laughs) is I I try to theme my fiction pages a bit without you know without trying to be too naff about it I do I like it when the pieces speak to each other and my theme for this week is near future dread (laughs) so yeah I look forward to talking uh talking about that later on
3: and we have Don DeLillo, John Lanchester, Matthew Baker and the debut novel from Charlie Kaufman, the filmmaker.
4: Yeah, Charlie Kaufman's debut novel, which is it's, it's, it's quite a big tome. It's over 700 pages. And um, yeah, they're all, they're all dealing with, I mean, obviously DeLillo is famous for his outbursts of paranoia, but they're all paranoic in different ways uh, and about our inability to control our lives. So yeah it's, it's a good spread.
3: Well uh, that comes later because first this week we would like to talk about Artemisia Gentileschi, the Italian Baroque master who is the subject of a major exhibition at the National Gallery in London. This glittering exhibition of her work isn't just the first of its kind in Britain, our reviewer Elizabeth Lowry points out, but the first major show the gallery has ever devoted to a woman history painter. We will be discussing rape in art and written testimony in some detail So please do skip this half of the show if it doesn't sound like something you want to listen to. Otherwise, Elizabeth Lowry joins us on the line now to tell us more. Hello, Elizabeth.
5: Hi, Thea, hello. Well,
3: um, your review starts logically enough, but also forcefully, you know, with, with the first painting that the viewer encounters at the exhibition, Susanna and the Elders, which was painted in 1610.
5: Can you describe what we see in this painting? What you see immediately is a naked young woman who is surprised at her outdoor bath and she's trying frantically to get away from two men who have been spying on her from behind a stone wall and now they're bearing down on her from above and they're demanding sex and the man on the left has come so close that his hand could easily fasten around her neck and the one on the right is telling her to be quiet by placing a forefinger to his lips and what's really um, quite unnerving is that this finger dabbles suggestively in the fringes of his moustache, which curl about it exactly like pubic hair. And if you see this picture in the flesh, as it were, you can see how carefully Artemisia has delineated each hair. So it's really quite a, an unnerving picture to see at the beginning of an exhibition. The theme, the biblical story, it, this was quite a
3: common one among artists of the period, but. I mean, it, what sets Artemisia's telling
5: apart here? What sets it apart really is her female perspective on the scene. Usually artists treating the story of Susanna, um, a virtuous young woman who is being spied on by two pillars of the community. When, when artists treat this theme, they tend to represent her either as oblivious to the fact that she's has two peeping toms looking at her or in some way, perhaps a tentress. But Artemisia, who is only a young woman when she paints this, she's only seventeen, really depicts Susanna's discomfort at being looked at at being surprised in this way, and her revulsion and her enormous distress as well. So she brings a tremendous psychological realism to this picture, which her male contemporaries arguably did not.
3: And I mean you you write you make the point in in your piece that there is, there is no point in trying to separate the work and the life in Artemisia's case. Uh, this is the painful proof, really, this painting here.
5: It was, in a sense, a, a kind of premonition. It was a premonition. Um, I mean, the story gets quite ugly, really. Soon after she paints this picture, she completes it in 1610, when she is only 17 years old. And some months later, she was she was raped by a, uh, an acquaintance, a collaborator, an associate of her father's, called Agostino Tassi who was egged on by um, another friend of theirs, um, a minor papal official of all things, named Cosimo Corley. And Tassi had been in the habit of dropping in on, on Artemisia. who was just a teenager, after all, uninvited. One day he found her painting alone while her father was out, and she describes what happens next in a sensational trial, which ensued sometime later. But uh, he hurled her Paletino brushes across the room, and he raped her. So this is the sensational fact really which we i think can't ignore about her life when we look at the work because to some extent i think her life is in the work
3: the trial you you mentioned it there i mean it's it's an astounding thing in itself. I mean, the ordeal of it and the process and the kind of the, the sense of, of herself that we get in it, the kind of the strength of her
5: character. Yes, absolutely. What's really unusual about this exhibition is that the curators have asked for and have secured the loan of the trial testimony, which is in the State Archives in Rome and is normally kept there. It's a 400 page testimony. The trial went on for seven months. And um, it was initiated by Orazio by Artemisia's father, who took Tassi to court some nine months after the rape to restore his daughter's honour. At first, it seemed that Tassi would marry Artemisia after the rape, but it soon transpired that he wasn't going to do that. In fact, it emerged during the trial that he already had a wife. Um, now, unusually, Artemisia, I, I suppose unusually, um, given her youth um, and given her inexperience, um, showed enormous strength of character during this trial. To test the truth of her accusation, she agreed to submit to judicial torture by means of something called the Sibylle, which was a system of cords looped around her fingers, which were then pulled tight. And I suppose the idea behind judicial torture was that if you were making a false accusation, you presumably break down and attracted once the pain kicked in. But anyway, Artemisia didn't break down. And this transcript is open, lies open for us to see at the page for the 14th of May, 1612, where Artemisia is undergoing this torture. And she says, Evero, 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 it's true, it's true, it's true. And as she does so, she stares Tassie straight in the eye while the ropes crush her hands. And then she says, this is the ring that you gave me and these are your promises. So it really is a spine tingling moment to read these words um, in the transcription. In the middle of this exhibition,
3: and I think for for a painter as well to subject her hands to to that kind of ordeal as well as as, as yes, quite something.
5: Absolutely, you can see what it cost her precisely, but she was determined to see it through, and as I say, shows unusual strength of character. It does.
3: One of the reasons that the the trial might seem surprising as well, looking back from our modern perspective, is that the verdict came. It was in her favour. You know, she was vindicated in a sense. The vindication was very short-lived because the punishment then never never transpired and she was hurriedly married off by her father anyway, but she, she moved to Florence, she was able to sort of get away from this ordeal, but she didn't break from her past immediately, did she? It's hard not to read her next major painting as a continuation of this story.
5: I think it's tempting to do that. Um, the picture that she paints really in the aftermath of the rape is her Judith Beheading Holofernes, which dates from about 1612 to 1613. And it's tempting to read this picture as her imagined revenge on her attacker, a kind of wish fulfillment. What's certain is that she again adopts this breathtakingly original and expressive approach to a traditional subject. And I think this time she's challenging the artistic fraternities of Florence as well as Rome. What she's doing here really is treating a theme which was treated before by the realist superstar Caravaggio, who was actually a drinking buddy of her father's. And it's the the apocryphal story of the Jewish widow Judith, who saved her people from the Assyrians by killing their general Holofernes in his tent while he was sleeping. But it's really something quite unusual because while Caravaggio's Judith It's really quite prim and emotionless. Artemisia is is so human, she's absolutely believable. As she goes about this business of decapitation, you can see her arms straining, you can see her expression full of disgust. And she captures the physical struggle of it all, the sheer effort involved, um, the mess as Holofernes' blood runs everywhere and she tries to saw his head through his neck using his own sword. So she, she really does something very dramatic here, which quite exceeds anything that her predecessors had tried before. And I think it is tempting, uh, perhaps, to see her, her own experience of physical attack, being imported into the way that she handles this picture.
4: Elizabeth, would, would these paintings have been deemed quite shocking in their day? I mean, was there a shock value to them?
5: Yes, absolutely. And I think, I mean, the thing about Caravaggio was that he was, you know, really sort of the bad boy of the Baroque. He deliberately tried to import as much drama as possible into an already dramatic genre, if you like, in, in his history paintings. And what Artemisia does is she turns up the volume on Caravaggio, she sort of out Caravaggio's Caravaggio. She tries to shock, she tries to shock through her realism, through the theatricality of what she does. And this picture really is a masterpiece of Baroque theatricality, especially the second version. She did another version a year later, for the Medici where she actually introduces explosive jets of blood and here she's drawing in Galileo's discovery of the parabolic law of projectiles in the way that she paints Holofernes' blood jetting onto Judith's bodice and the pictures were regarded as quite shocking and horrific in fact in the 18th century the, the grand duchess Maria Luisa relegated the second picture to a dark staircase because it was just too horrifying to contemplate so yes they were shocking. And was this painting, or was this theme
3: of Judith and Holofernes, was this what made her famous? Because she was extraordinarily famous in her
5: time. She was famous for painting the femme forte, the heroic woman, the empowered woman, became something of a speciality of hers. She treated the theme of Judith and Holofernes at least four times in the course of her career. But she also treated other strong women, Cleopatra, Lucrezia, St. Catherine of Alexandria. So she was she was known for painting strong women who suffered much. Was it unusual that she
3: put herself into those paintings? I mean, she, she created a physical. Resemblance. I'm wondering about, you know, this matter of the life and the work merging. This didn't seem to be something that she shied away from, it was something that she willed
5: herself. She didn't shy away from self-promotion. Um, you must remember also one of the things that she took from Caravaggio was the habit of painting directly from a living model. Which is of course what gives these pictures their extraordinary immediacy and she often used herself as a model because it was cheaper but she was also very adept at marketing herself and her own image and i think she was aware of the fact that she was unusually attractive, and that the fact that she was importing her own face and body into historical or biblical scenes gave them a certain charge. So it was a deliberate publicity ploy, if you like, as well as sort of an artistic habit of hers.
3: And when she moved to Florence and sort of started to put the past behind her, in a sense, she, she did kind of succeed in building... A fulfilling new
5: life for herself there, didn't she? Yes, she did. Um, I mean, this was really the beginning of her professional independence, her freedom from her father, and she achieved immense fame. She was the sort of rock star of her, of her day. She learned to read and write in Florence for the first time. She'd been illiterate until she got there. She was an autodidact and she cultivated her Medici contacts. She became the first woman to join the Accademia dell'Arte del Disegno in its 50-year history in 1616. She became friends with Michelangelo's great nephew. She befriended Galileo Galilei, the astronomer. So it really was the beginning of a new life for her in many, many ways.
3: She found fulfillment, I think, as well in a an enduring relationship that she was, she, having been married off by her father after the trial, and I think that was not a very uh, successful union unsurprisingly, she did then manage to find a happier union with someone and that seems to have lasted for much the rest of her life.
5: Yes she did, um, she was married the day after the trial ended to a minor artist um, called Pier Antonio Stiatesi and it was really a marriage of convenience, they had five children together of whom in the end only one survived And in around 1618, Artemisia began an affair with a very well-connected Florentine called Francesco Maria Meringi, which was an enduring relationship and continued even after she and her husband relocated to Rome in 1620. And in fact, we are given access to um, the detail of this relationship, if you like, in the exhibition because um, in 2011 a cache of letters sent by Artemisia to uh, Marigny uh, was discovered and they're on display as well and what's fascinating about them is the fact that um, you really get a sense of Artemisia's powerful personality in spite of the grammatical mistakes she makes in her phonetic spelling being a self-taught writer and reader and she writes very very passionately um, about all sorts of things in her daily life. This is after she returns to Rome in 1620, the, the, the need to get her things sent on from Florence, the death of her son, which devastates her, and also her sexual yearning for Marini. So they're very revealing letters, and they really give us a sense of the living woman.
4: You've got these letters that you say were just discovered about 10 years ago, and then there's also a, a painting that you mentioned in your piece that was discovered, I think, five or six years ago. And um, I'm just very interested in the, in the whole rehabilitation of Artemisia because I think she really fell out of public consciousness um, after her, you know, after her death, didn't she? And I just, I wondered sort of if you could tell us a little bit about how, how she managed to re sort of reemerge.
5: I think it's partly a function of changing fashions. I think our interest in Artemisia now reflects a wider interest in the century that also gave us Caravaggio and Velázquez, for example, and we're beginning to get a much more textured history of the period Um, she was rediscovered by the first generation of feminist art historians in the 1970s and she was immediately recognized as a woman who triumphed in an era and a discipline that had been dominated by men. So I think we're gradually beginning to reincorporate her story and indeed the stories of other women painters of the era into uh, the way that we tell the story of art in the 17th century.
4: And it seems like she was very much accepted. I mean, she became one of the most famous painters and she was fated by collectors. I mean, did did she meet with much resistance um, or was she just was she fairly easily accepted as someone, someone apart, as you say?
5: I think she was accepted. interestingly enough she was she was very very good at cultivating her contact she must have been immensely charming I think there was debate at the time about a woman's role obviously in you know in 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 the artistic sphere I think one of the reasons why she perhaps didn't pose a threat to the male um, fraternities the the artistic fraternities was that she didn't do fresco so she was never up on a scaffold you know competing for those large public commissions um, and that perhaps also helped ease her way but she was surprisingly I think well accepted by the male fraternities of of her day. They're all such
3: big hitters, her, for want of a better term. You know, they're also her paintings are all so strong and, as you say, full of drama and and power. How is it to see them all together in you know a relatively small space? I suppose does does any in particular stand out? It must be a, a, quite an overwhelming experience.
5: It's absolutely overwhelming. I think the colours have to be seen um, in real life to be appreciated. The one that really stands out for me is her Mary Magdalene in Ecstasy, which dates from 1620 to 1625, which was again sensationally rediscovered in 2014. This is a life-size picture of Mary Magdalene, and it's incredibly modern, incredibly immediate in the way that it's framed. It looks just like um, a photograph in some ways. She's pushed right up to the frontal picture plane. She's in a sort of mystical erotic swoon. Her chemise is slipping from her shoulder. It's very, very intimate. And unusually, Artemisia doesn't portray the Magdalene with any of the saints' usual identifying attributes. She doesn't have a crucifix. She doesn't have a skull or an ointment jar. So, and there's also barely a background to the picture. If you look really carefully, you can see there's a sort of rocky setting with foliage, but it's barely perceptible. And it's so immediate, it's so in your face, if you like, that it it really takes your breath away. So I think this definitely is an exhibition that needs to be seen and experienced firsthand.
3: It is, in a sense, as well, this this you know major exhibition in London. In a sense, it's a it's a, a completion, it's the realisation of a the theme that Artemisia herself suggested on a visit to London, you mentioned, in in the 1630s.
5: She was in London in the 1630s, she went there in 1638. Uh, to join her father, to join Orazio, who was elderly by then, who'd actually sort of get the impression that he'd fled Rome um, once his daughter returned there, partly because he was intimidated by her her reputation. He went to Genoa and then he went to the court of Charles I in 1626. And he was engaged at that point in decorating the ceiling of the Great Hall in the Queen's House at Greenwich. And Artemisia joins him. And we think that she may have helped him at that stage in completing this very challenging fresco. So she does do some fresco towards the end of her life. But um, there was always a sense of her reputation simply growing and and, and developing. She completely eclipsed him by that point. And fascinatingly, round about this time in in 1838, she produces something which is exhibited as the self-portrait, as the allegory of painting Lapidura where she pulls off what no male artist, you know, by definition ever could, in which she identifies herself with the spirit of painting itself. Painting is always shown as a woman in these allegorical representations of painting. And she she embodies herself as the spirit of painting. What's fascinating about this picture is that her female painter, her her pittura, isn't contemplative. It's not ethereal or in any way alluring. This, This painter's sleeve is pushed up on her muscular painting arm. Her hair is unkempt. She's completely focused on this physical, purposeful act. So I think, in a way, if you like, it's not too fanciful to say that yes, she she invites an exhibition of this kind precisely by capturing herself in this way. She's posing a challenge to the future, saying, "I am the painter, I am Lapidora, but I'm also Lapidora, I'm also art itself." Well, I mean, on on that kind
3: of tremendous image of of arrival, uh, Elizabeth Lowry, I think we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Still to come on the show, we'll look at some of the latest fiction with Toby Lishtig, including new novels by Don DeLillo, short stories by John Lanchester, and the debut novel by the Oscar-winning screenwriter and filmmaker Charlie Kaufman, the dizzying 700-page Antkind. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, may I just say that it is but a morsel of what you would find in an issue of the TLS itself. If you think you might like to subscribe, please go to the-tls.co.uk for details on how.
0: For full, important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why
2: the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or
0: sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation.
3: Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Toby, Lishtig, we need, I think, to talk about the hatchet job. Uh, it's been in the news, one of those rare instances where a literary event goes goes viral. There was a, a reviewer in the Irish Times pilloried a novel over the weekend. But I think before we get into the, the nitty gritty of of that particular case, let's define the term, shall we?
4: The hatchet job. Um, well, I suppose you've used the word pillory, haven't you? It's um, it's basically a takedown. It's, it's a means of stringently critiquing a work of art or literature, saying why it doesn't work, saying what's bad about it, hopefully being stylish and humorous and interesting in the process. And really it's not about being gratuitous, it's about saying why something doesn't work in the interests of the wider literary or artistic culture. Because you know, that's what we're doing as critics, aren't we? We're, we're, we're trying to place things in context and we're trying to say um, what is and isn't good. And in doing that, we're, we're, you know, we're we're attempting to do that in defence of what we think is good, aren't we?
3: And 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 there there is, you know, it, it is an art in its own right. There used to be a prize. Uh, of course, there was a prize. There's always a prize, but there was a prize for the best hatchet job. Um, and you know, one or two of our critics were presumably nominated for that.
4: Yeah, it, re- it was it was it was run by the Omnivore, wasn't it? And it, ran, it only ran for three years, I think, uh, maybe sort of six, seven, eight years ago. Um, it, was, it was an odd prize in that the the actual w- the winner got a year's supply of potted shrimp. Not quite sure how that happened. I mean, that's
3: a lot of that's a lot of potted shrimp. Now that you,
4: now that you <laughs> a lot of potted shrimp. Yeah, it doesn't specify whether you sort of you can call it in for every meal or is it every week? I don't know. I'm not sure how much potted shrimp I'm going to eat. I, I'm a big fan, actually. As it happens, um, I was quite pro this prize. It got a lot of sort of disappointed comments. I think people thought there was something sort of peculiarly British and snarky about having, you know, having a prize, celebrating being mean about things. But actually, I thought it, it was a good prize because, it's, as you said, it celebrated good and stylish criticism. Um, and all the shortlistees and winners were excellent critics and their pieces were important, you know, important pieces of criticism. In terms of TLS's own, um, you know, uh, writers, I think there was only one who made it onto the shortlist in those three years, and it was Frederick Raphael for his piece on John Le Carré's A Delicate Truth. Um, which was a fantastic bit of criticism. You know, he didn't like the book. He, d- he, he didn't hate John Le Carré. He actually just thought the book itself did a disservice to Le Carré's earlier work.
3: Yeah, and he disliked it very, very well. He did a very good job of disliking it.
4: Exactly. He did an extremely good job of disliking it. You know, he was very entertaining. It was entertaining to the reader, but not just because he was being mean. He really deconstructed the things that didn't work. And I think it really is. It's, it's difficult to do that. It's difficult to do it well. It's easy yeah. to be mean about something not well. And yeah. actually, that's one of the disappointing things about this piece that suddenly got so much airtime. And, you know, there's even a question of whether we should be discussing it now because it's probably got enough mileage. But I think it's, it is important to discuss it because of the things it failed to do. And this is it's a, it was a review by Barry Pierce in the Irish Times of Dolly Washington Ghosts. And without wishing to launch a hatchet job on a hatchet job. It was rubbish. (laughs) It was really, it wasn't funny. It wasn't stylish. It told us nothing about the book itself. I mean, this is one of the things it was, it was very much about the reviewer. I think the words I, me and my appeared on almost every sentence. Um, It didn't attempt to engage with what Alderton was trying to do, whatever that was. And, you know, it's fair enough that he hated the book, Um, but we didn't really learn why he just tried to, piece together a series of not very funny wisecracks and kind of moans about how difficult it is being a literary reviewer and inevitably you know it went well not inevitably you never quite know what's going to go viral on twitter but perhaps inevitably it, it, it went viral on twitter and people either loved it and thought it was you know terribly clever because he'd been so mean and then lots of people rightly weighed in and said well actually it's just a very bad piece of criticism.
3: Well and, and, and in fact when you when you go back to um the hatchet job of the year the omnivore they had a a manifesto in which they said that you know the hatchet job of the year is a crusade against dullness deference and lazy thinking it rewards critics you have the courage to overturn received opinion so this idea of received opinion that imply you know there is a power structure here that you need to be you need to play within the rules of that power structure pump don't punch down
4: absolutely and I think I think to a certain extent he was punching down because although I mean it was a debut novel, so that's definitely punching down. I mean, Dolly Alderton is reasonably well-known as a journalist, and I think he sort of felt, because she was already a bit famous and had a few famous you know, mates endorsing her book, and I think someone had compared to Nora Ephron, which he used as a kind of tool to beat her with. But it's not Dolly Alderton's fault that someone had compared to Nora Ephron. And I think you're absolutely right. I think a good hatchet job should be, you know, good hatchet should be taken to to already established, authors, artists, et cetera, et cetera, whose latest work is not able to measure up to their previous work. That's what you're criticising, isn't it? And that's the context in which you should be doing it. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there have been some wonderful hatchet jobs over the years.
3: I mean, w- w- certainly, certainly when you think about, I mean, because this, this is obviously, as you said, we, we talk about hatchet jobs, Kind of, it repeats. It's a pattern in literary journalist, uh, journalism. We we wonder whether they're a good thing, whether they're a bad thing. They come, uh, they come back again and again. But it picks up on this old concern, um, articulated possibly most enduringly, I think, by Il- Elizabeth Hardwick. You know, there was um, the famous Harper Harper's essay where she wrote about the decline of book reviewing. That was in 1959. She wrote against the light little reviews that taken over book books pages. Um, And, you know, she's critical of writing that is a hidden dissuader, gently, blandly, respectfully denying whatever vivacious interest there might be in books or in literary matters generally. And she was a master of wielding that hatchet. But crucially, I mean, she did it with with unparalleled style, but crucially, she she also, you know, she took the hatchet to Mailer and Capote and Tennessee Williams and William Faulkner. And she held them to account for not being up to par. She was doing them a service. <laughs>
4: yeah, not be, not being up to their par. That's yeah. the thing. And exactly. She was doing them a service. I don't know if they were, all, all of them always thought that, but no, no she's she wasn't. And, and she was doing literature service. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's that you know that was from the late fifties. That piece um, it, it could be published today and stand in exactly the same way. I mean, everything she says could could stand for today. And also, you know. Critics were talking about this in the 18th century. <laughs> you know, the mutual mutual endorsements and commendations and all the rest of it. So it's a perennial question. And that's why, it, 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 you know, the hatchet job is a, is a perennial art form as well in itself. So, yeah, I, I lament the end of that prize. And I also lament the fact that this particular hatchet job has received such, uh, you know, such airtime. I think there's a Daily Mail piece about it only yesterday. You know, a huge, huge page saying... This has caused uproar, but it didn't really seem to engage in the reasons why it's caused uproar. It seems
3: so unlike them. Anyway, um, (laughs) Toby, (laughs) turning turning to this week's fiction pages. There are no hatchet jobs. but there's plenty, plenty to talk about. So um, should we start with Don DeLillo um, because that's obviously a, a major new novel, uh, *Silence*.
4: Let's start with Don DeLillo. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's funny. It's, it is a, it's both a major new novel and a minor new story, <laughs> because um, it's essentially it's a short, it's a short, uh, short story. Um, it's about fifteen thousand words long, um, and it feels it has the texture of a short story more than even a novella. It's it's it is quite slight. Um, and in fact, uh, J. Michael Lennon. Refers at the ends to um, at the end of his piece to a bit of advice that Chekhov once gave Ivan Boonin uh, Ivan Bounin about the short story. He said, "It seems to me you have to cut off both the beginning and the end. We writers do most of our lying in those spaces. You must write shorter to make it as short as possible." And I think that's very much what Delillo has done with this. I mean, you're sort of plunged into this story and then kind of whipped out of it. Um, without much of a sense of context and it's very destabilising in a very kind of Delillo-esque way. I'll, I'll briefly give you a pricey of the story. It basically features this uh, event, event that reminds me a bit of the you know, other famous De- Delillo events, the airborne toxic event from white noise, for example, but it's an event that has caused a massive power crash, a disruption, uh, and this causes a minor plane crash. It, it causes a sort of an electricity surge, which takes down TVs and computers and all the rest of it. And these two characters who okay. s- suffer the plane crash—it's very minor. I say they will survive it. End up kind of walking from the, the the scene of the crash, and they get their heads bandaged up. And they end up wandering across town in New York to their friends who are watching the Super Bowl. It's all set in a couple of years' time. It's set in 2022, and they basically hang out with their friends and discuss. Football and philosophy, and that's sort of it. <laughs> um, but it's it's clever, and its its mood is, I suppose, the most enduring thing.
3: I suppose that the nod to Chekhov there in the review works both in terms of the short story, but also it, it, this book sounds almost like a play it sounds like a kind of a setup for a play because they're all in one room aren't they except for the kind of the the breakaway to the to the plane crash and then it sort of seems to be structured around soliloquies where each character will have a spotlight shone on them while they muse about you know, poetry or a particular museum or artwork. Exactly.
4: Um, Lennon calls these anti-dread or anti-angst measures. So one of the characters kind of tries to calm himself, tries to calm himself with the language of football comment- commentators. You know, this sort of ritualistic, um, it's referred to by DeLillo as a plain song, monophonic, a ritualistic voice. And then another character who, mean, this is a very, Delillo-esque sort of conceit he's a physicist and he just blurts passages from Einstein's manuscript on the special theory of relativity and again it's this sort of sense of trying to impose order and understanding on this disordered world and it calms him but of course ultimately no one can really be calmed that's a (laughs) yeah that's that's classic Delillo territory I actually I, I have read this I didn't I didn't love it as much as J. Michael Lennon did. I found it a bit sketchy of character and a bit, uh, I think the the alienation worked at the level of narrative as well as theme for me. Um, it's certainly not comparable to some of those more major works like Underworld and White Noise. But, it, you know, the, the value of a good review, I actually, you know, having read the book and commissioned this review and then. Read the review and edited it and thought about it. You know, he did. He does. The, the critic does really bring new things to it, and he he loves it, and he makes quite a persuasive case for why we should love it. And he definitely made me think about the book in a different way. Um, so yeah, there you go. The value of good criticism.
3: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if um, I'm just going to harp on about my theory now, but I wonder if he if he did in fact write it as a play originally, because it was it was announced that it was coming only in June, so it hasn't really been much of a build-up to what would be, you know, a, a major event in the publishing world. But so I wonder if, if it was a sort of a last-minute revision where, he, where it became apparent that a play wasn't going to happen because of lockdown and also uh, well, obvious reasons. I wonder whether they just switched it. Because he works across both mediums, he, he, he has written plays. So.
4: He has written plays, That's a really interesting idea and I hadn't, I hadn't actually thought about that at all. I mean, you're right, it, did, it sort of appeared out of the ether a bit like a classic DeLillo <laughs> <laughs> event in his It just suddenly, you know, suddenly a press release arrived a few weeks ago saying, hey, there's a new book out. And yes, I suppose it does have that kind of dramatic, um, sort of hermetic feel. Um, and I do wonder whether, you know, anyone writing a play You know, in January, February, (laughs) suddenly realizing what was happening to theatre, thought. Well, we could turn this into a we could turn this into prose instead. It's yeah, it's entirely possible. I'd love, yeah, it'll be interesting to, to see. I'm sure we'll learn yeah. in the fullness of time whether it was originally approached in that way. But it would make sense, absolutely.
3: I wonder whether um, some kind of similar media switching of, of of media happened with Charlie Kaufman's offering because we know him better for his films. Of course, this is his this is his debut as as a as a prose writer for for, for a novel. Um, he's a screen he's a screenwriter, obviously. But Antkind, this is it's, it's a very big book, 700 and something pages.
4: It's a very big book. And actually I, w- I was wondering when I sent it off whether this would be a hatchet job. I didn't set it up as such. Um, and I think even though it's a debut novel, were well, our critic not to have liked it, I think, you know, this could have been legitimate hatchet job territory because Charlie Kaufman is famous and famous for his writing. And, um, you know, this venture into a new medium might not have worked. And I must say, I I, I started reading it before I sent it off for review and I was a bit, sceptical that it was going to sustain itself over 700 pages but Harry Strawson our critic really liked it really enjoyed it Um, and it sounds to me like I mean it's it's classic Kaufman territory it's about it's about a Charlie kaufman hating film critic um, who meets a 119 year old African-American filmmaker who has made his own three-month-long stop-motion animation film promptly dies bequeaths the film and the archive to this critic who then loses it because uh, the the, the truck in which he's transporting it catches fire and only one frame remains. So he has to reconstruct this entire three month film from this one frame. So it's, you know, it's very much Kaufman talking, you know, using his art to write about art, idealizing the perfect work of art without really being able to show it to us. but it's, it, it's different from his films, obviously, because of the medium. It's, it's far more interior. And Harry Stoughton's got a nice line about it. He says, we're trapped, we're trapped in the narrator's mind. The transplantation of an overly conscious character from the screen to the page means that we're on the inside looking out rather than the outside looking in. It's a, cla- it's a claustrophobic place that can be as tedious and absurd as it is darkly funny and original. And I think it, yeah, I think it is really interesting that he has, he has changed medium in this way. But obviously his, yeah, his obsessions are still being explored.
3: Yeah. I mean, I certainly tend to come away from, from his films and I, I really, I'm, I'm, you know, I am a fan, Um, but I always tend to come away from his films feeling like I've, I've come so, so close to understanding something that is almost, you know, painfully important Uh, some, you know, some truth, but I can never quite pin it down. And um, Harry Strawson, I mean, he admits that uh, he says I could read Ankhine backwards and upside down, and it would still go dizzyingly over my head. So you know, so far, so Kaufman. Um, but he does distill a kind of lesson in it, doesn't it? It's quite—he's he, quite funny towards the end. He
4: does, and I think—but I think that idea of not never quite understanding—I don't think it's a cop out. I think it's about the necessity of artistic failure, isn't it? So I think you know, he's really interested that in that idea of the perfect work work of art um, that can never really be grasp that. And I think there's something interesting about the idea that he, you know, in his films he often has writers who are trying to pursue this and of course you can't ever see, you know, their, their written artefacts because you're all dealing with the film medium and in this he's, he's trying to kind of show us the perfect film but he's doing it in words. So he's kind of hiding with one, you know, he's looking at one medium but hiding behind another in order to do this. Um, but the book's also very funny as you would expect from Calvino. I mean, he's an, he's an absurdist and you know, he he never takes himself too seriously. So, yeah, I think this sounds like a, a really, really interesting extension of his of his oeuvre.
3: I think, I mean, I think it's also worth emphasising um, how nicely these pieces fit together across, um, you know, two or three pages. The title of the next book under review, a collection of short stories by John Lanchester. Uh, it's called Reality and Other Stories. I mean, it could have offered a title for this very spread.
4: I'm very glad you spotted that. <laughs> um, and I'm very glad you appreciate that. Yeah, no, as, as, as I said earlier in the show, I, 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 do, I like it when pieces speak together. And, you know, we, they're, we're, we're, they're, of course, there are always themes coming out of everything that people write and produce. And it's nice to allow those themes to kind of coalesce. And absolutely, uh, reality and other stories might be the headline for any of these pieces and any of these books. Um, this is a collection by John Lanchester. Uh, also steeped in near future dread, um, uh, it's uh, alternates as our critic Alison Kelly says somewhere between the the real, the hyper-real and the surreal. It's full of thought colonizing ghosts, zombies, and posthumous presences. And yeah, he I think he has fun, Lancaster, playing with with form and, uh, and, and 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 with his speculative fictions. I mean, his last his last book, The Wall, was a, also a piece of speculative fiction set in a kind of Britain. Surrounded by rising seas, and a wall's being built around the country to stop asylum seekers coming in. Here, um, for me, in, t- in terms of the way Alison Kelly describes it, the, the pick of the crop is a story called "Which of These Would You Like," which she says is Orwellian in flavour, revolving around the baffled helplessness of a political prisoner condemned for unspecified unspec- crimes and granted only an illusion of control through a series of trivial choices. Um, that sounds great. <laughs> Definitely sold it to me.
3: Yeah, no, it sounds it sounds a lot like um, it sounds like The Pit. The idea of that kind of futility of of building something for for or digging something for no clear purpose.
4: Definitely, definitely, there, there's yeah, there's definitely there are overtones in this whole spread of Kafka and of Borges as well, aren't there? Mm. Just uh, there's there's futility and absurdity.
3: It seems almost as though um, also the publisher has twigged that Halloween is just around the corner and they're offering they're offering us something <laughs> for our very modern tech up, uber-capitalistic. Yeah,
4: I, you know, I'd like to take credit for, uh, you know, for, for for putting these spreads together. But really, all we're doing is uh, literary editors, aren't we? Is just responding to what's out there, and it's slightly unsurprising that these sorts of books are coming out at this sort of time. Um, but that's no bad thing.
3: No. Um, and there's another collection of stories by Matthew Baker um, that sort yes. of rounds things off again, continuing many of the many of the themes of the previous books. There's a lot of death and paranoia everywhere.
4: Death, paranoia, um, they're, they're, it's full of sort of spe- speculation. And actually the interesting thing about this, this collection, Why Visit America, almost all of the stories seem to have been optioned. I mean, um, our reviewer, uh, Jacob Hoffman, the excellent reviewer, Jacob Hoffman, has mentioned um, Black Mirror, mm. uh, Charlie Brooker's series. And, and these stories seem very Black Mirror-esque. Um, and it's sort of unsurprising that they've all been well, pretty, I think pretty much all of them, certainly more, certainly more than half of them, have been options. So we'll be we'll be hearing more about Matthew Baker as, as uh, the years unfold because we're suddenly going to be seeing um, seeing his stories on our screens.
3: Um, can I hear a cat purring on your lap, Toby? <laughs>
4: there, there was a cat. She's <laughs> now gone. She was quite cross with me um, about something or other, but there was food in her bowl, so I'm not quite sure uh, what it is. She's one of those cats who likes to be led to right. her bowl. Even if I see. Coffee. Sometimes wakes me in the middle of the night and then all I need to do is just show her up to her food
3: i just had an image of you sitting there while talking to us about these sinister
4: fear um, and dread things
3: just slowly stroking stroking
4: the cat cat. yeah i do do that sometimes
3: (laughs) well um look toby it's all very it's all very um dark and 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 worrying this week what can we look forward to
4: next well really um more of the same and i you know i am fine i promise you (laughs) um We've got a spread next week, three pieces looking at the fantastical, the grotesque, the gothic and the downright weird. So this is less a spread on, you know, speculative near future dystopias and more just plain, Uh, grand guignol, I never quite know how to pronounce that, but oddness, uh, sort of more kind of fantasies. There's a really wonderful piece by B.J. Silcox, the wonderful B.J. Silcox on Susanna Clarke's new novel Piranesi Susanna Clark wrote a debut novel about 15 years ago called uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It was a counter history of Regency era magicians. Um, and it's incredibly well. I think it was longlisted for the book and it, it won the Guardian First Book Award, or at least was shortlisted, but it, it did extremely well. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies, no mean feat for literary fiction. And then the author became ill and she's basically been housebound for about 15 years. And this is her. Follow up novel that people have been eagerly anticipating. Um, and it's much shorter than, than her debut, um, but it sounds absolutely brilliant. Um, BJ, BJ does a fantastic job of explaining, explaining how brilliant it is. And I'll, I'll very, very briefly give you the conceit. It's, it's set in this house, in the, a house with a capital H that's, that has an ocean running in it. Uh, seabirds nest in the rafters, water lilies bloom in the rain flooded depths. And there are two characters uh, one who's called Pyrenees, and one who's called the other. And all that is known by Piranesi is that 15 people have existed in the history of the world, the history of his world. He doesn't know anything else. and He's an empiricist. And therefore he, he starts from these first principles. And it's, it's about his his journey and his relationship with this crazy house. Um, sounds brilliant.
3: It sounds brilliant. It sound, I mean, it sounds it sounds I mean, it sounds wonderful. <laughs>
4: yeah, you know, it really does. It really does. And BJ loves it. Um, so that's something I will definitely be reading. And then there are two more pieces to look forward to, which I'll, I'll say very briefly. One's a review by Keith Miller of a book by Alex Fabie called Mordew, which is another odd picaresque tale um, set in a world full of underground passages and intriguing chambers. And then the other, which is the most bonkers of the lot, <laughs> the bonkers sounding of the lot, is uh, it's a piece by H- Human Barakat. Uh, and it's of a book called Lake of Urine. By the pseudonymous author Guillermo Stitch. I'm not even going to try to summarize it. Um, look at the review, it just sounds loads of fun and completely mad.
3: Well, we have that to look forward to. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Toby. My pleasure. everyone for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts and or subscribing to the TLS itself. You'll find all the pieces we've discussed on our website, as well as information about the many ways in which you can subscribe in print or digitally. Lucy Dallas will be back with us next week, as I hope will you. Until then, goodbye.